HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. We sit down with proprietor and owner of Ashes and Diamonds Winery, Kashi Coletti, to talk about his early days in the magazine industry, starting at the legendary BC Boys Grand Royal Magazine, his foray into the music world, and the eventual opening of his wine label and tasting room, Ashes and Diamonds. It's a great chat, a good cultural walk down memory lane, of the 90s and aughts and just some of the things that we seem to overlap with in our two separate lives. And then we dig into the archives for Minnesotian singer, violinist, and keyboardist Annie Rossi, who's notable for her unique style of playing the viola and singing at the same time. She stopped by the shipping containers in 2015 and was chatting about her new release and her uniquely constructed instrument that she performed on as well. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network.
Hashi. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for both taking the time to sit with us, but for also throwing us a few wines. We enjoyed the Cobb Franc over the weekend. So did everyone we were with. So uh, we're already off to a great start. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Darren. Um, I was reading on your background, and you've always been in the mix with culture and creative pursuits. And one of the things that I absolutely loved reading about you is that you actually worked at Beastie Boys music magazine, Ground Royal. Now, I've I've had the pleasure to be at the old HQ in, in Atwater oh, wow. um, for the legendary Steppers party. But what was it like, one, to work there at that magazine, but also what drew you into the creative field and magazine field at such a, a young, young part in your life? Yeah. So like many uh, of our generation, we were... <clears throat> Um, going to our local record stores and, and seeing this really um, uh, interesting magazine cover, which was an illustration of Bruce Lee uh, mm-hmm. doing a roundhouse kick with uh, <laughs> uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and it said Grand Royal. Um, I thought that magazine was really interesting, like many people in my generation, mm-hmm. um, as it represented an independent voice, an alternative to mainstream magazines. And whether it was, uh, you know, juxtapose maximum rock and roll or, mm. um, um, you know, a variety of the zines that, that came out of that era, Ben is dead. Um, I love that their views reflected mine and also mm-hmm. how open, open the format was. And as a matter of fact, like one of my inspirations um, that I've carried on into my professional career that Grand Royal did quite well was um, connecting dots is... Mm-hmm. You know, um, the last person you'd expect to see in a music magazine was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know. Um, and so the un- they were sort of open to the unexpected and in terms of bringing together maybe divergent views that had some sort of commonality. So that is, that, that is what I learned at Grand Royal. Now, what drew me there is what would draw any teenager there. <laughs> I was 18 years old and, you know, yeah. I was this... Uh, hardcore kid and uh loved the the beasties and loved um their their uh, especially their punk rock stuff yeah so um yeah it gave me an opportunity to be you know the youngest person working there in a in a really creative um zeitgeisty environment it's so interesting that you bring up this whole idea of segmentation which to me and to you was part of growing up where it's if you listen to hardcore, you listen to punk, or if you're into music or if you're into food, they didn't really cross over. And now it's, it's everything overlaps. Everything's creative. Um, But you did also live in a time when there were all these magazines and it really was like this heyday of like publications, but they were still very niche. It was like men's fashion or music or, like this, and even the Rolling Stones and the Spins back then, yeah, they were covering culture, but you went to them for a very specific thing. Is that what led you to starting your own publication because you weren't finding enough of a Venn diagram in some sort of print material that you're like, I'm just going to show how everything really does overlap through my point of view? Yeah. And even before that, you know, I, I had been, um, I, I started, I was associate publisher, editor in chief of filter magazine, which yeah. sort of shout out filter. 
Yeah, exactly. Great magazine uh, with Alan Sartirana. Um, so they were they were um, um, a part of my trajectory to to my own magazine, Mean. Um, but uh, and before that, I, I was also uh, uh, um, uh, was writing for uh, Larry Flint Publications for Hustler Magazine. I was also um, writing uh, uh, about music for them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you you know if you ever had the saying, I, I read Hustler for their articles. Well, I, I'm the I'm the reason for that, right? Um, You're the face we think of, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but no. Um, it was, it was a very, you know, this is obviously pre Instagram, Facebook blog, vlog, um, time. People, and so people I, as a brand, even being like all yeah. these things represent me as a brand. Yeah. Mean, mean was me and one other person. It wasn't yeah, like, a, it wasn't a magazine. It's just, we happened to get very big names in the magazine. Um, and I mean, I sold all the ads myself was editor in chief. It was, um, I, kind of all the stuff that you're doing with your podcast right now. That's what, that's what mean essentially was. So people thought it was much bigger than it was. And that's something that's, that's sort of carried through my professional life with ashes and diamonds. Even right now, people think it's much bigger than it is, but it's, it's a fairly small operation and it's uh, very independent. So yeah. Uh, you know, I guess we can, um, I can always say I have a, a knack for making things appear higher and, uh, perceived value than, (laughs) than it's actually, so, well, I mean, I you know we're going to get to the wine in a little bit, but the 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 value is there uh, with that. Now, you know, this is what '90s, early 2000s, sort of mm-hmm. this era, and food wasn't at least culturally what it was, what it is now, as far as like being anything more than yes, you had your PBSs and. I mean, you know, Food Network wasn't around and the idea of becoming a chef was not the vaulted position, even the the celebrity position it could be outside of, you know, Julia Child or something like that. But it even goes further than that because food wasn't even really part of people's like when I go back to like their brand or their personality. It wasn't like, oh, like I'm a food guy or girl or something like that. Was food in your life at the time? Did you think a lot about what you ate or was it just like we just need some pizza to get the, the next issue out? Yeah, um, you know, I certainly always uh, appreciated um, Persian food, actually. Mm. Um, so I was uh, the benefactor of some tasty Persian food my mom used to make me. And even I would make the tra- trek from, you know, even in the early days when I was at Grand Royal, um, I would, uh, I lived in Echo Park, but mm-hmm. and this would have been in 1995 when Echo Park looked very different than it does today. Sure. Uh, and I would make the trek to the South Bay of Los Angeles, which is where I grew up, uh, an hour just, just for dinner. So, mm-hmm. um, where I, where I stood, uh, with food was, you know, I was always embracing of Los Angeles's multicultural, uh, cuisine, like, uh, Rafi's and, in Glendale, um, or, you know, like everyone else growing up here, you know, Tito's tacos was a big deal. Um, but Even no, the transplants love Tito's tacos and I speak to- as one. Totally. And so like multicultural food is something I've always been very passionate about. Did I go to Michael's or, or some of the more fine dining restaurants <laughs> in, in Los Angeles at the time? Well, it was above my means, but then, sure. um, also culturally it didn't really connect with me either per se. I think that we all saw, um, you know, 
the culture merge with culinary mm-hmm. happened during the Great Recession when all the um, sort of the food trucks popped up. And, right. and we saw um, that they're very much um, the personalities, you know, the culinary was one thing, but the big personalities that were around culinary sort of integrated with it and made it very culturally, culturally relevant. So things changed around that time. What about wine at that time? Because obviously California wine did have a reputation, but not again, not like it is today, especially with, you know, the more natural, um, you know, type of wine that Ashes and Diamonds is making. But how much was wine on your radar? Were you even drinking wine? Was it just something where you're like, not not my vibe? And, and if not, then when did you start getting into wine? Yeah, I I grew up drinking uh, wine even as a as a teenager, um, and I had access to, uh, thankfully, my dad's cellar, um, and a lot of the, <laughs> the wines that he had in his cellar were, you know, seventies era Mondavi, Ridge, mm. old school Napa Valley, old school Santa Cruz wines that were actually in many cases pretty natural. Um, yeah, it wasn't until much later that. Um, people started to get a little fancy with how they made wine, um, which was contrary to the early days. In the early days, if you tried a Mondavi from 77 or 78, you'll notice that those wines are remarkably fresh, they're Mm. earthy, and they pair deliciously with food. Um, That At some point, the plot was lost there. And I hopefully, you know, what Ashes and Diamonds is doing is filling in the gap, giving people a history lesson, lesson, but then also reminding them the joy of pairing food and wine together. I mean, if you're coming up in the nineties and you're starting to think about food and, and going out and as you start growing stuff, what was wine like that coming out of California for those who might not be familiar in during that era? Like what had, what of the plot had been lost? Um, well, first of all, those wines were um, accessible and affordable, too. And, and not just those wines, but also uh, the Bordeaux wines as well. Um, you know, you can still um, live, mod- you know, come, you know, have modest means and still purchase first growth wines and, and the, the best wines of Napa Valley. Then I think we got into the era of, uh, you know, for lack of a better term and no disrespect to Robert Parker, um, but sure. Parker Parkerization of wines, where they became um, their value was uh, determined based on scores. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I don't even think it has anything to do with Parker. I mean, you think about our culture in general now. Sure. We determine uh, value based on box office. We determine, uh, you know, uh, everything has a Rotten Tomatoes score now. So I don't. <laughs> I want to be mindful of. Parker, yeah. he also did a lot of good for the of wine course. industry too. Um, but no, he ultimately what he was doing, he was just um, following um, uh, the palate, and the palate got to be, you know, the boomer palate was they were raised on Coca Cola, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, our generation was uh, raised with kombucha. You know, we mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Acid, acid is our homeboy, so I think it's just sort of. Um, palace changed over time. I don't mean to jump around here too much, but no, I just no, want to drive home that point as I'm talking about Parker. No, of course. And, you know, it's, um, and look, I've seen it with food and I've seen it with everything where it's maybe niche 
and it becomes more of a mainstream commodity. And then you start going, well, how much, how much can we maximize profits? And then who's putting value on it and what's the value? And, and that, that just drives the industry. And at some point you just get people who get into it, who don't even like wine. They just see it as, as, as something that they can sell. Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, that's a, that's a low existence to, to, to live. Um, I think that, um, <laughs> you're, you're definitely in the wrong business if, if, uh, uh, you're doing this uh, solely for the money. Um, the ag in general, as we all know, is is very complicated and, yeah. and can be in the times we live in these days. As you know, uh, we've at Ashes and Diamonds, I, I like to remind people we've been through floods, fires, uh, pestilence, mm-hmm. and um, uh, we haven't endured famine yet. But, you know, uh, if we do, I'm sure the four horsemen will be trotting down Highway 29 Um uh, headed towards ashes and diamonds. But the point being in the day and age we live in now, um, if you're doing it just to make money, you are in the wrong business. A hundred percent. All right, let's get a quick musical break because I, when we come back, I want to hear about the start of ashes and diamonds and how you've grown it. And I want to talk a little bit about the winery and some of the music that people can expect when they swing by. We have a yeah. song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're here with Kashi Coletti. And before we went to break, you're talking about still working in media and still being in the entertainment side. What made you want to start your own winery and why did you want to make that switch in careers? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, when I was at Capitol Records, the, the business was shifting pretty dramatically from um, uh, to streaming. And what that meant is digitization of anything is um, uh, infinitely scalable, which when you're working with artists and individuals who uh, essentially your job is to help them realize their dreams um, when you're scaling and, you know, um, you're only able to take so many mm-hmm. um, off the assembly line, uh, when you're ultimately you're watering down the amount of the, the quality of work you can do for them. Yeah, so right. it really wasn't pertinent just to Capitol Records or the music industry, but everything was changing. So I wanted to go into a more uh, tangible, tactile universe and going into ag is, is, is a good calling for that. So I came across a vineyard in mm-hmm. the Oak district of Napa Valley in the Southern side that was planted to um, old vine Cabernet Franc and Merlot. Mm. And I always loved Cabernet Franc and Merlot, the, um, the right bank wines of Bordeaux that I would have as a teenager, um, you know, whether it was Chateau Fijot or um, uh, Angelou, um, they were uh, Merlot and Cabernet Franc based. Um, knowing that they had, this vineyard had old vines, I knew if I acquired this vineyard and if I were able to sell some grapes, I could at least get the project off the ground. So mm. bought the vineyard, uh, I sold the grapes uh, on an annual basis. And within the first year, I already was making my own wine with Steve Mathiason. I was, uh, Steve was actually um, helping me raise money for, for Ashes and Diamonds. He introduced me to, of all people, uh, John Merriweather, who is also um, a, a big name in, in finance, but also uh, had his own wine convexity as well. So, um, you know, um, thankfully, I, I, I found funding and was able to plan to build a winery in hmm. uh, knowing that it would open sometime in 2017. So the idea was to make wines as soon as possible so I could age those wines and then release them when the winery was open in 2017. I mean, shout out to Matthiasen because that vermouth is one of the best things I've ever had in my entire life. And what a great tutor to have. That's a great word to describe him. I'll say if you like Steve's wines and find him talented, you would be shocked to know that his humanity and his kindness mm. are neck to neck with his talents. He is he's a, quite an exceptional person. I mean, that doesn't shock me at all. And that's a really like beautiful story of how you found this place and then you found the right people. But what were some of the realities in opening up that maybe some bumps that isn't just the like, Oh, this is like the great moment of it because it's heavily regulated. As you mentioned, like agriculture these days, as far as the elements has gotten tougher. Um, and also, I mean, the, and, and I'll say the last thing as well, Sharp elbows. There's competition up there. You're not the new winery. What was it like coming in, being the new person on the block? Like, how did it really all get started? Um, where were maybe some of the bodies buried? Yeah, I mean, all over the place. Um, I'll start. With, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll start with PG and E. Do you our like favorite. the flavor of that wine? Because that's a little bit of a body <laughs> decomposition. <laughs> um, I'll start with PG and E, which is yeah. a, our, our utilities company, which. 
um, as you all know, uh, many point the finger to them for the fires that happened mm-hmm. in 2017. Um, but something as simple as moving a power line in, in the vineyard so we could build a tasting room, um, something as simple as that um, required me to actually um, uh, drive to their headquarters and continue to knock on their doors and be persistent for over a course of five months until they finally got sick of me and they moved to power line. This is all to say persistence. If you're yeah. not persistent and you are, uh, you have a, um, you don't have a stomach for heartache, then you're in the wrong industry. This is mm-hmm. incredibly difficult. There are much easier ways to make money if that's what your sole intention is, but mm-hmm. we know we have to have a viable business. So, um, yeah, it's equal parts uh, grit, passion. Um, if you um, uh, look at the industry today with its volatility, sure. um, it's it's not easy. Um, but I love what I do. I love old vines. I love Merlot and Cabernet Franc. I love what they the expression of somebody tasting a wine from Ashes and Diamonds um, and seeing um, how. They're surprised that a wine from Napa Valley can be so elegant and how see how well it pairs with their foods. I mean, seeing that delight in someone's faces, some, some people's faces, makes it all worthwhile for me. You know, having good wine is a great place to start. That's what you hope when you launch a new winery. But to break through today, you really do need to come at it with this branding and personality in this whole package how much of your past media experience and working in advertising and starting you know your own publication did you bring to it both in creating this whole brand around it but also in i know you mentioned steve but like putting a team together yeah well like i said i mean that i learned that at grand royal you know Mm. creating um uh harmony from divergent voices and and really being uh ultimately the host of a party, bringing together somebody like Brian Rotinger, who, um, you know, when we first started working together in 2013, wasn't, you know, as um, as well known as he is now. He's mm-hmm, gone on mm-hmm. since to do the last two Jay-Z album covers. He's sure. done Beach House album covers. I mean, the guy is a legend. Then Barbara Bester being our architect, you know, Barbara worked at Grand Royal uh, with me in, in, mm-hmm. in the 90s, you know, and here she is now one of the most um, prominent architects in our industry many years later. Um, Then you have Steve, obviously, uh, as a singular voice in wine, and then Diana Snowden-Sess coming on board a bit later, um, and her roots going all the way back to Burgundy. What's amazing about the group of people I just mentioned is you can get them all at a dinner table, and they would enjoy uh, each other's company. In fact, they have enjoyed each other's company. Um, and that's all I'm doing really is hosting a dinner party. In my opinion, Mm. I'm, this is what you do. If you're just a talent, talentless hack like myself, you, you just are a curator and you bring together people that are far more talented than yourself to play. And if you're lucky enough, like myself, you get to play with them. I mean, you have a great clubhouse winery to play at as well. And if, if I knew that, that's where I was going to be dining and drinking. I, I might join the team uh, with all the other luminaries that you have. Yeah. Um, uh, how have you differentiated that spot than others? Because if you go – for those who may have never been to the the area, it's easy to 
rent a car, get an Uber, and just say, take me to a winery. And you can wind up at a nice enough experience. You know, it's fine. Like, you may not remember it. You may have a couple of glasses and wind up on a, a club where you're paying X amount of money a year for okay wine. But what was the experience that you wanted to create? What did you want the space to represent? Blokes. You know, I'm just a bloke, Darren. Um, and I wanted a place for blokes where um, the regality of, of the industry is um, is not pertinent anymore. Uh, it's a place where, um, in fact, the, the sign that says Ashes and Diamonds right now, when you um, go into our entry in our driveway, I wanted it to just say home instead mm. of Ashes and Diamonds because I wanted people to feel like home. Um, yeah, it's like I said, the, the whole dinner party concept, you know, our food, our culinary program is, is singular. Uh, our chef, Ethan Spicer, has been with us since the beginning. And um, yeah, what other winery will you go to where all of a sudden you'll have, you know, saffron, uh, you know, uh, crispy saffron rice or kebab or um, gosh, what are we doing now? Borscht. Um, mm. We're doing um, Jewish braised brisket. Um, paired with uh, uh, fresh wines um, that are farmed organically, that are uh, thoughtful, and that don't have a bunch of uh, you know, it's not high in SO two. It's it's a it's a very honest wine, and these these are things that weren't so common in Napa Valley until I I, I came out there. They are out there. I mean, there are some great w- wineries out there doing what we're doing and have done it for far longer than us. You know, names like uh, Kathy Corison. Mm-hmm. Arno Roberts, uh, of course, Matthiasen, um, Maya Thomas. These wineries have been around for, for quite some time. You know, we're just, we're late to the party. That's fine. Um, you know, at least you're coming with a point of view and it's not just trying to, you know, move as many bottles as possible. Yeah. Uh, speaking well, we'd of... we'd like to do that too. Well, of course, of course. <laughs> I, I mean, look, you're, it, I understand and, and you said it before that you know it's a business. Um, yeah. One of the other things I want to talk about as well is that given your background and given your taste, the type of music and the type of, of vibe that's set when people come to the winery, what can people expect to hear? What What is it like when they walk uh, in? Is it different on the weekend? What's it, you know, was it different yeah. on the weekday? Things like that. It's it's constant. I'll just say, um, have, do you remember the Jabberjaw in Los Angeles by chance? It was of course. All ages. Um, uh, club where you'd go see your favorite sort made, of made legendary in the that dog song exactly 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 but one of the reasons why i like going there is it was a, a sanctuary for the others mm. there's no alcohol so you could be a teenager you can go there and eat milk and eat milk drink or drink milk and eat cookies and and really feel like you're part of a community um and it's a community of outliers and that's why what i wanted to create at ashes and diamonds so the vibe is always going to be the vibe, which is going to be very warm and inclusive. Um, it doesn't feel like a sort of uh, um, like you've been granted access to, sure, my, sure. you know, my, uh, you know, winery. It's supposed yeah, yeah. to feel like home. That's what, one, one thing we wanted to do right away. Um, the vibes uh, beyond that, I say, what, what are the Ashes and Diamonds vibes? You know, good music, good wine and good food and good people. I mean, and there's a sense of lightness throughout. Um, you know, we will, we will, um, uh, you know, uh, play everything from, you know, two-tone ska to, um, you know, uh, we'll play Lee Perry, we'll play mm-hmm. um, um, The Clash, we'll play um, 
you know, music that is uh, um, harmonic and groovy and, and offers that sense of lightness. But generally speaking, there's a, there's a positivity to the music. So the music is uh, vibey and it feels good as does the, the food and the wine. It's, it's all about really disconnecting and feeling like you're entering a sanctuary or a Shangri-La just for a mo moment with everything that's happening in the world. I really wanted to create that sense of um, um, that sort of feel good space for people. Mm, I love it. I love it. And what I also love is that you guys have given back to the community. Um, you had that great partnership with Karno and the Oakware project. Can you talk a little bit about the collaboration, how it came together, yeah. what it was about and, and how much money you guys raised for the community? Yeah. Um, it was, uh, during the pandemic mm. and, um, I, uh, an old friend, Michelle Fleischley, um, who's just a, a veteran, uh, manager from the music industry. You know, she had been work, she had been working with Karen and I think it was danger mouse. They did a project together. Mm -hmm, so we, mm -hmm. we were exchanging some emails and, trying to figure out what our, what was happening to our lives at that point. And <laughs> we, we knew that it was a special time to raise awareness around, um, um, you know, um, what was some of the social issues that were happening in the world. So uh, the Okra project came to us through Karen and Michelle connected us to Karen. And we decided to have Karen draw individual ashes and diamonds labels. And we, sell them to um our customers and so we didn't even have an auction we just sort of um you know priced it i think um a few hundred dollars a bottle and we raised about ten thousand wow. dollars i will say we're we're on the precipice of doing something much larger now with karen uh, hopefully we'll we'll see how it how this shakes out but the hope is um for us to do something uh in the six figures um, wow. um and to um go with one of our premium wines, uh, not to say our rosé is not premium, uh, but it's certainly a higher price point skew. And these labels will be sort of more like a lithograph and a, a print where um, we do a limited run, um, but we just do more of them to raise more money. Um, we can't talk about the um, cause just yet, but it's going to be something that is um, um, you know, of the same spirit of the Okra Project, which Okra mm. Project is, um, you know, giving meals to um, the Black trans community of Los Angeles. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful thing that you did. And it's great to hear that while the moment may have passed for some people and been like, oh, we, we checked that box during that time that you guys are continuing your work together. And I'll be excited to to hear when that happens. And I guess that sort of sets us up for our last question is, What's the future look like for Ashes and Diamonds? What what's what can we expect? Uh, yeah, I mean, to I would say that um, you know my ultimate goal is to bring uh, Ashes and Diamonds into every home in America, but do so in a way that doesn't um, sacrifice quality. Mm. So that's the sort of um, that's the holy grail I need to figure out. But um, I. I I mentioned earlier, you know, it's a bloke's winery. Um, now I want to make sure I'm offering um, uh, price points that are accessible to um, the everyday bloke as well. So, um, you know, that's something I am working on because I think there are a lot of great opportunities to create um, uh, wines that are uh, priced reasonably, 
but and reach a, a, a broad um, uh, swath of people. Um, wine is supposed to be at the dinner table. I mean, and when I say that, not a, not just a regal dinner table, but everyone's dinner table. Um, it's it makes Thanksgiving dinners more bearable. Um, <laughs> it, you know, there are there are there there is always going to be company you're with where a glass of wine will, will do do the trick for you. So um, yeah, accessibility is really important for me. I think wine, unfortunately, has been um, mislabeled as sort of. Uh, the drink of the elite, and I, I think that's that's a shame because uh, more now than ever, I think we need unity at mm-hmm. the dinner table. Whether you're you know left of center, right of right, QAnon, I don't even care. Like everyone, let's just come together and stop stop all the bullshit and let's let's um, drink some let's good wine. Ha- drink some good wine. You'd be surprised how much we all have in common. We could just just get together. Awesome. Well, listen. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. If people want to follow along with what's going on or visit the winery, where can they go? Uh, AshesDiamonds.com or just Google Ashes Ampersand Diamonds Winery and um, you'll you'll see uh, uh, a lot of uh, websites that would point you to us or a local uh, bottle shop near you, which you should – I'm not saying you shouldn't buy from us, but – you should also buy from uh, those independent bottle shops throughout the country who are curating some amazing wines for you. And um, uh, they all, there's so many great natural wine shops that are opening up across the country right now. Support your lo- local um, uh, natural wine uh, shop. And, uh, you know, hopefully one of these days that'll just be the norm. Yeah. No, no, no. That's great. Uh, thank you to Deanna and Becca PR for setting this up. Really appreciate it. We have a song from the archives and then a performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Annie, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, I think you are the first person that I have ever had on the show that's built their own instrument. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, I want to. I would love to know how that came about. Sure. But first off, like, what instruments were you playing that just weren't doing it for you? Well, um, I have a, a classical background in violin and piano, and then I started songwriting on the viola. And many of my... Early, you know, earlier stuff was done on the viola, bowing, singing, plucking, and then I started to want it to have more of a role, of like an electric guitar, mm-hmm. and so that came along. Like a lot of tedious complications came along with trying to turn it into an electric guitar. So um, turning the viola into yeah, oh, like I had like zip ties and like humbucker pickups, like glued onto it, and it would always feed back, and it would always go out of tune. Um, do you do you feel like you maybe push like the the viola like more than almost anyone? I, I don't know more than anyone, but definitely like there were there were other string players who I would encounter who would feel like maybe uncomfortable or angry that I was like defacing my int- instrument in some way. Or um, did you but, like were they? Did you think it was like sac? Did they think it was sacrilege? Some yes, yeah, sacrilege is probably um, a word that they use behind my back. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I um, did you find any other? Did you find a support group at all? Like. Instrument hackers? Certainly, yeah. There are definitely, like, plenty of string players who are also very open to this idea. And I understand the institution of the the strings being delicate, too. But um, then I kind of was frustrated with the viola for a couple years. I tried to get it to do what I wanted to do. And eventually I started talking with my friend Thor Harris. And he he had been building some of of these, these club-looking stick things with viola strings on them for swans. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the band that he's playing in, and um, he said, I can try and build you some, and we can experiment. And it ended up being quite simple and kind of seamless the way that... Before we get to the instrument, what mm-hmm. was, like, ultimately the thing that the viola just, like, didn't do for you? Where where did it just fall short? I think where it fell short was that I... the. I didn't want to use it as a melodic instrument, like mm-hmm. bowing it. I wanted the function to be more like a guitar, and so... It's like trying to push a, a circle into a square. It just doesn't quite want to... It just doesn't have that ease. So basically, I I took the things from the viola that were really important to me and what I wanted to do and made this more accommodating to strumming. And like. And what elements did you bring over? Um, well, the shape is clearly gone. It's just like a, a tree branch. Um, 
the thing that stayed was basically the dimensions of the instrument and mm. the actual strings, uh, the viola strings. Um, that's really about it, uh, and that it's fretless. Um, and it and how did you come up with the name Electric Stick? Um, I was. <laughs> I mean, it's it pretty literal, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For now, I, I I feel like there's something kind of so utilitarian and simple about it that. Um, the first thing that came to mind was the electric stick, and it felt <laughs> it felt appropriate. And um, does the wood, like the nature of the wood, I mean, both instruments use it, like change the sound, or how does it change the sound? That's a great question. I mean, I guess Thor and I are still kind of experimenting. This is the second of three that we've made, and probably the the best for me, um, playing wise. And this is made of a certain kind of wood called crepe myrtle. And then we have others that are made out of different wood, and it does sound really different. This is, like, probably the warmest-sounding one. Um, but, of course, it's just solid wood. It's not, like, hollow inside, so it doesn't matter as much as, like, a regular viola wood. But uh, Do you know what the coldest wood would be? <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe um, a palm tree? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, it's interesting because they talk about like violins and violas, like it takes time to warm up the instrument and to like to really kind of bring it to life. Yeah. Do you feel the electric stick is like the same way or do you think different properties are associated with it? In a lot of ways, I think it bypasses that whole process because it's so much about the the way that it's picking up the sound through the electric pickup. Um, and so much of the aging process of violas is about the resonance and the space in the instrument. Mm that allows it to be acoustic and change over time. Chances are like, what's going to affect this more is the amp that I'm plugging it into and not necessarily the, the wood will like factor in, but it's more, I guess what the amplifier is more of what's speaking to the ear instead of the actual instrument. Okay. Can we hear a song? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, what's the name of the first song you're going to play? Um, it's called wild west. And um, this is a new song. I haven't um, put it on an album yet. Um, do you need it or me? Okay.
So you've been working. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the cop. Yeah. Uh, so you've been working on building this instrument for, or playing with a year and a half. What are some of the um, lessons that you've learned in, in building it? Um, or you and Thor, I guess. Sure, Thor definitely is 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 the man behind all the technical stuff with the instrument. But uh, I guess what I've learned is that. Um, the instrument that I'm playing with and, and the range and the resonance of this of the sound can kind of open up my ideas about melody and the way I sing. My voice kind of follows the instrument in a way or kind of matches the, the timbre of the instrument, and I've been pretty inspired by that part of it. That's interesting. So, like, originally you were trying to make songs on a, on a viola that wouldn't let you push, and now you have this new instrument, and now the instrument, you would say, is pushing you. Yeah, that's kind of yeah, that's a, actually a great way to put it. There's there's just kind of a sense of ease. There's not all this stuff in front of me that I have to overcome before I can actually just make the music. So So like what um what type of melodies or what type of ideas is this inspiring in you? Um it's a combination of things. Definitely it's um if you, since you can't see it for those of you, um it's it's kind of rustic looking um and it kind of conjures a lot of um kind of raw out outdoorsy kind of um wild west themes that was kind of one of the first songs i wrote on it um but also just like simplicity and minimalism kind of it's brought a lot of that to how i'm working through things how does your i mean you have a few records that you've already written are, are they translatable onto the instrument or is it all new work uh they yeah they definitely are um i'm actually I will play a song from my last record where the viola um, was actually playing what I'm going to play on the instrument. Um, but a lot of my live set that I'm playing, which, by the way, I have a show tonight at the Manhattan Inn. Oh, okay. Um, oh, great. Right, right um, by where I live. Yeah, cool. Yeah, okay. I also live over there. Um, 
it uh, a lot of the set is like half stuff, old stuff that I've translated onto the new instrument and half new stuff kind of thing. Has it been like an uproar from your fans that you've moved away from the viola? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't really know. I guess, um, I guess I still have more, more. I need more time and space to kind of express what's going on. But I, it is a viola essentially. I mean, it it definitely is still a viola, but. Um, I guess I'm more into expressing ideas as a songwriter and a lyricist and a singer than I guess I view this more as like a vehicle for songwriting now, as opposed to like, I'm a violist and I, I understand. So this has also somewhat changed your like self identity uh, as a musician. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's part of a process that's been happening not to feel so tied to what the, what the music is made with just kind of, letting it happen with whatever's kind of in front of me trying to make it I get, yeah just not so much about the objects involved with making the music okay um, why don't we hear another song okay uh, what's this one this is called Crushing Limbs and this uh, is off my last record um, Heavy Meadow um, I need to just tune really quick that's the no thing problem. with the guy that it can be kind of finicky. Does it not hold the tune as much, or? Um, it does relatively well, but they, I, I move tunings around quite often. Okay.
Some of your previous records, you've worked with Steve Albini. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that experience like, and what kind of lessons? Because he's obviously known for teaching lots of lessons. Uh-huh. Uh, what lessons did he impart on you? Honestly, um, whenever I think about the time that I spent working with him, I just saw him as a person who was um, very, very good and efficient at what he does. <laughs> I know it sounds clinical, but he really actually just has. Um, a really important skill set for a lot of a lot of musicians. It's hard to find engineers that you that you really believe can document what you need to do. Eric here is actually another uh, example of a great engineer who's going to record my record. Um, Eric's on drums for those of you who can't see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I guess I learned from Steve too that you, as musicians, we to to kind of transmit what we need to do. We need people who have those skill sets. It's really important and. Um, and they're kind of, I hate to say it, but they're kind of dying out. There just isn't, there's, there isn't the same amount of money and resources in the industry to keep those people around. So Steve taught me a lesson of we need other people to make, make what we want to make. I want to follow up on the, the dying out thing, but mm-hmm. like, what are the skills that you feel that he had? Like, what are some of the more tangible ones um, that he brought to the table? Just, uh, for one thing, like he, the dilemma that I had at that time, I was playing the viola and I was singing and we, I needed to perform it live. So basically you have two really important elements that can't be separated. And he just dealt with that limitation really well. And Mike, the room, he put like, I don't know. He just, the way that he mic the room was very creative and he kind of problem solved this thing that I could never quite get around, which, um, and which records did you do with him? Um, Rockwell. Okay. Um, Really good, really good drum sounds. Um, excellent drum sounds. Um, also, just pretty laid back and easy to work with. Um, and <laughs> and why do you feel like people like him are are dying out? Because I mean, there's this argument that like it's never been easier to like set up your own studio and do everything in your house. Sure. So the barrier to entry is low. But I think I think. Um, Certainly, there's been like a ton of accessibility to be able to record your own music, but, um, and that that's helpful in a lot of ways. But there, there are definitely there is definitely um, a very, a very deep and nuanced skill to recording music that only gets passed on to people um, through through generations of music making. And as you know, I'm sure there's not really much music left in the in the music industry. I mean. There's some floating around, but um, I just think because there's, like I said, less and less resource, there's 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 less money for people to actually make a living at being an engineer. And right. so it's, it's a dying art, and it's an incredibly um, – it takes a lot of skill and a lot of knowledge and experience to actually get to where Steve Albini or, or Eric has, has, has gotten. Um, so the next record, uh, recording early next year, uh-huh. all uh, – new songs built for the electric stick yeah okay yeah um what's and where are you recording um at the magic shop uh in in soho awesome and then that will be like a new record next year 
Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you said you're playing a show tonight? I'm playing a show tonight at the Manhattan Inn. Um, I love that place. Yeah. Actually, it'll be a trio, Eric, and a, a bass player who's not able to make it today. Okay. Um, um, well, we want to make sure we have time for uh, one more song. Sure. Um, but where can people find your earlier records, um, get in touch with you, Yeah. see photos of the instruments? Um, well, you can find me on Twitter, Annie uh, underscore Rossi. I'm actually... I'm. I'm really bad at the internet. I That's fine. <laughs> that's like a running stuff. that's a running theme in today's show. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um my website's under construction. Um but Facebook. Um I just imagine having like that old school like hazard tape like from like the nineties, yeah. like under construction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like my under constraint under construction page is under construction. Yeah. <laughs> um and um I have records on iTunes and and um also, there's a label called Three Syllables that has Heavy Meadow for sale as well. Oh, amazing. Um, One last question. Sure. Um, have any fans started sending you pieces of wood yet? Pieces of wood? Yeah. No, that's really cool, though. Uh, I would I would be I'd be open to that. Yeah. I mean, you could potentially put a call in, like, an international call. Because, I mean, that wood is not a, it's not a big piece. Yeah. So you could potentially put out, like, an international call for, like, two-by-four-ish yeah. size wood. Okay. To see if Thor... Could transform that. Yeah, I might have to steal your steal your idea here. You can just take it. Okay, you're not you're not that. I I'll guess what, I'm never going to have use for that. Okay, thank um, you. So I want to thank Sid and Homer for coming on, and congratulations again to 10 years of Roebling Tea Room. Shout out to Darren and Anna. Uh, shout out to my family. Uh, it's been a wild fucking year, as all I can say. Shout out to my girlfriend, who I adore, and uh, I hope everyone has a good holiday and is safe and uh, you know returns we'll return next year for the beginning of year seven of snacky tunes so you're gonna play the last song of this year no way yeah so 2015 any message you want to impart onto guest listeners family friends doesn't be a shout out could be cryptic um could be a word could be a feeling i don't know just uh enjoy listening I don't know. Oh, that's actually that's actually perfect. Okay. Well done. Um, what is the name of the last song? Uh, it's called Get Me Working. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Um, and uh, we'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks to Liz, Jack, Aaron, Patrick, Heritage, the whole Heritage family. Uh, bye.
Snacky Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.